Hello, and welcome to the Breaking Over the Anxiety podcast. I am your host, the anxiety nutritionist, gut and hormonal health expert, yoga and meditation teacher, and cat mom, Taylor Jonfro. And this podcast is designed to show you how to relieve and resolve your anxiety disorder through the powerful combination of food, lifestyle changes, targeted supplementation, gut and hormonal health optimization, nervous system regulation, yoga, meditation, mindset, lifestyle coaching, and more. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaking Up With Anxiety podcast. I'm so excited for today's conversation. I have Miranda here, who is a rebellious spirited force, professionally trained registered nurse uh, who has been practicing for eight years, as well as a naturopathic graduate waiting to write her board exams. Oof, those are heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Wishing you the best of luck. I know you'll crush it. But she also has a truckload of certifications from meditation to Reiki to quantum human design analysis, all the way to NLP. I'm also trained in NLP uh, and professional life coaching. And she blends them all in her social media content, which is fire, by the way, and her work with clients. And her mission is to inform, educate, and empower you to tackle anything life may throw your way as you navigate this wild journey. And she has been through the ringer with mental health battles, trauma, addiction, burnout, chronic fatigue, difficulties with the healthcare system. And she's come out on the other side with a toolkit that's part dynamite, part sage wisdom, all of which makes her extremely qualified to talk with us today about stress regulation, something that is a must for all of my anxiety girlies, honestly, for anyone, whether you have anxiety or not, if you are living in the modern world, stress regulation is such an important conversation. And what I also love about Miranda is she isn't someone who is going to sugarcoat things for you. She's going to tell you straight up how it is. And this is how I see myself. So I feel like we both want to just like light a fire under everyone's butt and show them how powerful they really are. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to you to give us the Coles note version. I know this is a loaded question, but like who you are, how you got here. Yes. Number one, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, but yeah, so a little bit about me, quick Coles notes, because yeah, the last decade of my life, you could probably write an entire novel series on it itself, but blessed coming either way. Soon. Just kidding. But yeah, so I originally started off in, as a registered nurse. I originally wanted to be a conventional medical doctor. Uh, that was my dream. I am obsessed with science. I'm obsessed with the human body. I think it's the most magical thing on this planet, in the universe. Like, it's just so cool how we have, how the body works all on its own. Um, but as we know or may not know in the conventional medical system, health and wellness isn't really seen as integrative or everything being connected. Uh, We're trained in everything being connected, but then, you know, when you get out and start working as someone in the conventional medical system, it's just not like that, you know, bureaucracy, politics, barriers, um, yada, yada, yada. So I started in Emerge very quickly, was like, this is not for me what did I do? Like I've put in all this work, my whole life's dream has been crushed. 
had a bit of a career crisis and through a random series of divine events, ended up finding naturopathic medicine, um, which I couldn't believe that this existed. I was like, wait, what? Like, this is this is the kind of healthcare that makes sense. Like, this is how all healthcare should be. So yes. fast forward four years, right? I know, duh. Fast forward, now, but yeah. <laughs> fast forward four years and uh, that brings us to this past September. So now I am currently practicing as a graduate uh, at Curated Care in Kingston, uh, which I love and I'll write those board exams in February. But during that time, I still notice gaps. Um, there's still a ton of gaps, even in naturopathic care. And this is what I really aim to fill through all of these other <laughs> certifications. So um, mindset, I've noticed is the foundation of any health condition. Like it really doesn't matter what you're coming in with, like everything from heart disease to gut inflammation to allergies to no joke, like enlarged prostates, like whoever I see as a patient fundamentally they have mindset and stress regulation as a core issue in their healthcare, and naturopathic doctors still aren't completely poised to cover the mental, emotional, um, spiritual aspects of that. So that's really what I the gap that I've aimed to fill with that. So my ultimate goal is that you could come to me, like I said, with any challenge, any health concern, any combination of things and I'll be able to help you. And that was ultimately my goal at the start, just needed to find the right slot to, to be able to provide that. Yeah, that was never gonna happen in the medical model. It's just not built that way. It's interesting that you said um, that it's taught that way in school, that everything's connected, but I are you talking about nursing school specifically? Because nursing school, my understanding is that it's more holistic than medical school. Yeah, so nursing school was very biopsychosocial. We were taught that right from the start, social determinants of health, you know, you can't separate financial health from environmental health, from global health, from physical health, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, mental health, it was one of the pillars, one of our four pillars. And I was like, amazing, this is so great. Yes, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. But then you get into the actual job and you genuinely can't do anything that you're trained to do. Uh, so there's this huge um, gap between what nursing education is and what nursing on a practical level actually looks like. And I feel like a lot of nurses um, hit this and they're kind of like, what the hell I've been lied to because I constantly see nurses flocking into these more alternative or integrative certification and therapies, which I think is really great. I think most nurses get into this profession for that reason. Uh, but it suck. I mean, hopefully we're seeing that start to change now because I think we have to, <laughs> because the system is so broken. I don't think we can go any other direction, but yeah, for the time being, there is a big dissonance between that versus when you go to medical school, it is straight up physical medicine. Like they have maybe a couple hours of, as you know, <laughs> nutrition specifically, as well as psychological um, approaches. And that really comes from, you know, way back with Descartes originally, that Western medicine philosophy of the mind and body being separate. And we kind of still practice that archaic type of medicine, which has been disproven, but 
that conditioning runs deep. So I feel like it's such an ego thing. Like so smart that we can just outsmart the body with this medication, or we can just outsmart the body Mm. with the surgery. It's like, I'm sorry, human being doctor, like you're not (laughs) smarter than the human body. Like, I'm sorry, you're not. (laughs) Yes. And, and that is a huge aspect of it. And this whole, I'm going to, I'm going to say Westernized perspective, because that's really, we don't see this so much in Eastern, uh, Eastern or more global approaches to health. Um, But from a Western medical perspective, that is what we see. We see a forcing, like it's very much okay, this is what the body's doing. We don't want it to do it. So how can we like force it or jam it into doing what we want? When in actual reality, we know that the body has this extremely intelligent, innate life force that is well beyond our comprehension that we will ever be able to understand that drives everything. And this is where those questions come up where you're like, okay, well then if it just takes a medication, why can like, five people get the same medication for the same diagnosis and have completely different results. And like the obvious answer is there's more going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you can hear my cats wrestling, I'm so sorry. Apologies, everyone. I have this cute little fluffy thing on my mic <laughs> to try and drown out this noise. I don't know. Every single time I sit down to podcast the past few times, they just get into it. They're brothers. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm like, there's hair everywhere. I'm like, guys, can you not right now? So (laughs) anyway, apologies to everyone listening. I don't know. Maybe it's something that my podcast editor can edit out. Uh, But that's what that noise is in case literally anybody is wondering. But to bring it back, (laughs) I love meeting nurses and talking to nurses because they're all Western medical trained and you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. And they all share the same values as me, all the ones that I've met. Like we have the exact same conversations, like we're frustrated with the system. And I love that you mentioned multiple times that it's a systemic issue because I do try to make that very clear. Like sometimes I get frustrated and I go on my Instagram stories and it might come across like I'm bashing doctors, but Mm -hmm. I feel like doctors are blamed for so much when like they are literally an employee of a system. And yeah, of course their education is I don't even want to say lacking because they're educated on something specifically like they're Mm -hmm. educated on medication and cutting things out and things that like, if you're in a car accident, like you need people who are trained in that kind of stuff. Right. Um, But the systemic issue as a whole is that like we have been subconsciously programmed and trained to think that that is our only option and that there is no like other option out there. And if you do go the natural route, you're like a wackadoodle. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, that brings up a very good point of why doctors are even in this position to begin with. Like, I think a lot of people don't quite reasonably, because why should you need to understand this, but how diagnoses are made and how treatment is prescribed from a Western medical perspective. And this being said, like, we're also trained in all of these conventional diagnostics and treatments, like, and then trained on more plus plus. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically what a diagnosis is, is just a checklist of symptoms that a patient is presenting with. And all a diagnosis is, is it allows us to sort you into a box. That's the purpose like the purpose of a diagnosis is to put you into a box, Mm -hmm. then that allows us to do research and create statistics around a diagnosis because you can't create statistics around individuals. 
and this is one of the biggest barriers to individual care. Like you actually kind of can't have individual care in conventional medicine because of the way they diagnose and treat based mm -hmm. on general population. And then treatments are recommended based on algorithms. So, you know, if you have this lab result, you go, like literally it's drawn like an algorithm table, like this lab result, then you go here and prescribe this med. If after this time it doesn't work, then you go down here and prescribe this med. So it's very like input output, very computerized. And that's just because there's just so much information for that a family doctor has been expected to gatekeep. And this is a huge issue because we put so much pressure on medical doctors to pretty much be responsible for knowing and gatekeeping everything. Like you can't see a specialist without going through through to your family doctor first. You can't access community services a lot of the time without going through your family doctor first. And this is a little bit inappropriate because we can't really expect one person to be responsible for all of these things. But that's really the way that we've been trained to do it. So to your point, I think one of the biggest ways we can see this shift on a system, systemic and an individual level is starting to utilize other integrative practitioners alongside your family doctors. We relieve some of that pressure off of the poor family doctors who have seven minutes to navigate your entire health, everything, and start using the people who are poised to give you the tools that you need like holistic nutritionists, like naturopathic doctors, like chiropractors, like physiotherapists. Um, these aren't used enough because again, we're trained that even if you wanna access these people, you should go to a family doctor first. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not necessarily true for every single thing that people are dealing with. So there needs to be a shift from this everything needs to be a diagnostic and treatment first before you can start putting in interventions. Because as I'm sure, as you also practice, there's also the func functional approach here of like, yeah, okay, you can sort someone into a box and treat them, but you can also just look at the person and like what is happening within the person irrelevant to whatever diagnosis you're working with but still be able to do a lot for that person. Yeah. So. This is like my, I don't even want to say biggest pet peeve because I'm sure that's actually not true, but the whole blood work thing and like, oh, my blood work is fine. It's like, you're not a piece of paper and don't even get me started on lab ranges versus functional ranges. I mean, we could do a whole episode on that, but mm -hmm. this is like my, my biggest comment. And I just really love, thank you so much for sharing like all of that. I, to me, it blows my mind that, and this is not putting, this is not blaming anyone, but that we think that a family doctor who's had four years of medical school is going to be the gatekeeper and is going to know everything. Like I'm constantly doing continuing education. You're constantly doing continuing education. I don't even run a general practice. Like I'm very specific in what I do for a reason, because in mm. my mind, I'm like, if I run a general practice, I'm going to burn out like 50 times because <laughs> there's so much to know. And I'm almost like doing people a disservice because mm -hmm. there's no way I can know. I can only know a little bit about everything or I can know a lot about one thing. Right. And it's like, it, I love that you use the word pressure, like the we're putting pressure on our family doctors. My girlfriend was telling me not too long ago, she was having like this incredible back pain and she went to her family doctor and her family doctor 
gave her like a painkiller, right? And then Mm -hmm. she was so mad because she was like, he didn't know anything else about treating my back pain. But I was like, why do you expect him to? Like, go to a physio, go to a massage therapist, go to a chiro. Like, why was your family doctor the first person you went to? Like, I would never, and I have back pain on and off. I would never go to my family doctor for that. Never. (laughs) But, but, But that's like people's initial like, oh, something's wrong with me. Anything's wrong with me. Let me go to my family doctor. Yeah. And it just seems super obvious how we've gotten where we're at, right? Because family doctors are burnt out. um, So they're quitting in waves because who's going to put up with this for an indefinite amount of time? You know, nurses and doctors. Very well in Canada. So nobody's buying family practices. So family doctors are retiring. Nobody's buying it. They don't want it. Exactly. And that's cascading into the general population because now people don't have family doctors. So what are they doing now? They're going to walk-ins who have like even less information on you because they have no idea about your health history. Then what's happening now? Oh God, have you tried to go to a walk-in clinic lately? It's impossible. They don't exist. They they exist, but don't. Yeah. So this literally happened to me. My family doctor retired and nobody bought his practice like a year and a half ago. And so, you know, I put myself on a bunch of wait lists because it's still important that I have a family doctor because then I don't have access to certain things. Uh, And I actually found a lump in my breast, maybe like, I don't even know now, seven months ago. And without a family doctor, I couldn't get any imaging done. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I couldn't even pay for it. Like, I couldn't even be like, can I just pay for this? Like, you literally can't. So I went to a walk-in clinic and the walk-in clinic, they have this long list of things they don't do. And that's one of the things they don't do. And so um, it's turned out to be fibrocystic breasts. We're all good. I ended up paying a nurse practitioner at that walk-in clinic who is able to give me the requisition. And now I do have a family doctor. I just got him like a few weeks ago and we're doing follow-up imaging in a few, just to make sure, you know, but I, that Mm. was the first time that I was just like, oh, I can't even get care if I want care right now. Yeah, and you know where you end up? (laughs) You know where you end up? Yeah, either paying for it or in a merge. I know. I was like, do I go to emergency right now? I don't know. (laughs) The lineup's in the merge. I know, and I don't want to back up a merge, you know? I know, it's like, and that's, we are actually healthcare trained people with some knowledge of how to, I mean, I have tons of knowledge about how to navigate the system and it's still, you can't get care. Like even me, I have a family doctor. I was having some palpitations uh, for the like a week or so. So I'm like, it's not acute. I'm not, if I go to emerge, number one, I'll be waiting for 12 hours. Number two, they're going to tell me, well, it's probably anxiety and send me home after 12 hours of waiting, right? G- check in with your family doctor. That's what they, that's what they yeah. would say. <laughs> so I try to make a family doctor appointment one week wait understandable because there's no family doctors and that's pretty good but still when you're actively having symptoms like i know how to almost tell if it's an emergency or not but the poor average person should not be responsible for navigating the healthcare system and that's really what it's come down to so bottom line it's super important like what you're doing is so important because people need to continue to be educated about options and feel empowered in their health and wellness journey and know there's not only family doctor walk-ins and emergency 
There's many other places to go. And as you were saying with the low back pain, if I have patients who can't present to me with any sort of musculoskeletal pain, I say like, do not go to your family doctor. They're, they're going to give you pain medication. That's it. Because that's how they're trained to treat pain. Mm -hmm. So instead, go to someone who is specially trained in musculoskeletal health. And I do think there's also a part of this about payment. And I think a lot of Canadians, um, I don't, I'm not sure where all your listeners are from, but at least in the Canadian healthcare system, there's this misconception that our healthcare is free. Yeah. Oh and God. it's I need you to talk about this free. because I'm really <laughs> sorry to my Canadian listeners, but I, I say this with love. My Canadians are the biggest pain in the ass when it comes to paying for things. <laughs> I, so I primarily work with Canadians, Americans, women from the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, not because I'm worldwide, uh, because I'm not as tightly regulated as you are as an ND. <laughs> um, and the reason I say those countries is just because thus far, that's who I have worked with. Um, mm -hmm. And so I've worked with a, a wide range right now of kind of women around the world. And the Canadians, it's like pulling teeth to get them to pay for something and I I'm Canadian okay so I get it I love you please this is not me like throwing shade it is literally an observation and it's because we have a misconception that everything mm -hmm. should be free mm -hmm. so please yep. speak quickly and then we'll get into stress regulation because you did say everybody you see at the foundation that's what you're seeing stress like mismanaged stress yeah yeah, so the free healthcare thing, this is something I see a ton. I also, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation that I won't get into, but there's also something to be said around the value you're placing on where your money's going and where your money's actually going on a day-to-day -day basis and how that's serving you or hindering you, but that's a whole nother conversation. Oh, I literally, when someone, when a, when a good friend of mine tells me uh, I can't get blood work, for example, like I can't pay for full blood labs, I'm like, let oh you just got your nails done how many times do you get your nails done you know and like not judging them they're my friends so I'll be like let me see your Amazon account you know and again it's value I was actually with some girlfriends a few weekends ago we did a little girls weekend and and my one girlfriend was on the spot about to buy these gorgeous pink boots but they were like a thousand dollars and she's like I shouldn't but I kind of want to and I turned at her turned to her and I was like I love you so much please don't take this the wrong way but this is what I mean when I say that people have the money. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're, they're just not valuing their health in the same way. And like, that's fine. I don't mm -hmm. know how to say that in a way that doesn't sound so awful, you know, but it is just a value thing. And and some people genuinely don't have the money. And I know that too. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and that, that's the sticky part about like the free healthcare because it's not free, but it's forced. Mm -hmm. um, which is, I mean, that's again, a completely different conversation about public versus private healthcare pros and cons of everything but bottom line where we're sitting right now like you have to pay your taxes um and those taxes are going towards your health care uh but the reality is is again with that value piece okay now you get to decide fair or not just or not like that's irrelevant here like yeah you have to pay your taxes you have to pay into healthcare. but the healthcare that you're getting if you are not prioritizing where your investment, your extra money is going towards health, then you will be left with standardized healthcare. And then it's up to you as an independent adult, whether that's enough 
for you. Uh, but if you find yourself being something, and like you're saying, this is not a shame conversation. This is more of an awareness conversation. Like for you to check in with yourself as an accountable adult and think, okay, if I'm feeling tired, if I'm feeling anxious, if I have muscle and joint pain and headaches and IBS symptoms every day, I'm going to the free paid tax health, public health care that I I'm contribute forced. to. Yeah, the forced paid health care because I'm forced to pay it and I'm not going to access anything else. Well, then that's kind of sort of contributing to why you're stuck where you are because there's a lot of people that can help you. It's just a matter of what's more important to you, like your morning coffee or like getting answers on your health care. Mm-hmm. Hey, 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 I am quickly interrupting this episode because if you are like me and you are a visual learner, I wanted to let you know about my free one hour webinar class called the three secrets to natural anxiety banishment that walks you through, well, the three secrets to natural anxiety banishment, specifically how to optimize your digestive function, how to fix your gut how to eat in a way that boosts natural neurotransmitter production and reduce inflammation, and how to bring your hormones back into balance. I love podcasts for listening to when I'm on walks or driving or cooking or cleaning. They inspire me and give me so many aha moments, but I am a visual learner. So I benefit the most when I can see the information presented in a clear and organized manner, like a slideshow. I don't really remember or retain information that well when it's just presented verbally, which is exactly what I have done for you in my three secrets to natural anxiety banishment training. And within that training, I share the top things that you need to be doing to optimize digestive function, boost neurotransmitter production, bring your hormones back into balance, all in a beautiful slideshow. So if you haven't watched that, hit the link in the show notes to get your copy of the three secrets to natural anxiety banishment free training emailed right to you. Okay, back to the episode. Okay, stress. I feel like right. we, have, we could do like literally a zillion hour podcast or podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I love talking about this. I don't have a lot of people in my life. I can talk to about it with besides clients and stuff, because my family is very allopathic. Um, mm. My side is starting to come around, but my partner's side is so not there. Um, so I just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> Super but, fair. Can you please define stress for us? Mm -hmm. So So, I think, you know, we can talk about stress as like the, the noun, and then you can almost also talk about it as like a verb. So we'll start with the noun. So stress in its raw form is, is, can be anything. All it means is something that's impacting the body that the body has to respond to. So I think we have this misconception of stress that it's like when things are hard or when things aren't going right. Um, but there's also good stress. And just because it's good stress doesn't mean that your body's and mind aren't feeling it because any piece of sensory information that's coming in at all, whether that be through your eyes, your ears, your skin, your tongue, your nose, right? 
any of your senses is causing some impact on the body that the body now needs to calibrate or respond to. Like nothing is benign. So the first thing is to, re to remember is that when I ask people, how is your stress? And they say like, oh, I don't have stress. That is never true. Like never. we are under stressors 24 seven irrelevant. It, it's more a question of the, the amount of stressors and then our body and mind's ability to respond to that stress that determines how it impacts us. So what actually happens with stress in the body is comes in a few steps. I'm going to break it down really simply. Obviously, there's a lot of nuance and different details to this. But overall, you bring something in with your senses. So the senses that I just described. Now, the important part about this step to remember is that not most of this is not conscious. So 95% of the information that we're drawing in is happening without our awareness whatsoever. Because think about like, we would just not be able to function if we were paying attention to every single tiny bit of information in the world always 24 seven. Mm -hmm. um, and just quickly, that's one little piece like anxiety, I'll tie in anxiety because I know a lot of the people listening right now, that's your main concern and your main issue. Anxiety around sensory overload is a thing. Mm -hmm. So some of us, for various reasons, are primed to pay attention to a lot more stimuli than others. So if you think about it, it's basically akin to like a computer overloading. So when we look at anxiety, one piece we can look at is the sensory information. Are we extra, when I talk about highly sensitive people, that's really what I'm talking about. It's it's just all that means, it doesn't mean anything bad. We make our own narratives around what sensitivity means, but at a scientific level, it just means that you are more prone to being aware and overloaded by the amount of information coming in. Okay, I have a question. So once, yeah. I just want to interrupt before I lose my train of thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, whenever somebody reminds me of a way that I used to feel when I had anxiety, I like to one point that out because honestly, I forget sometimes. And then somebody says something and I'm like, holy fuck, like I used to feel like that. Um, yeah. So I do always like to share that with everybody. So my question is also inspires my question. I, when I had an anxiety disorder and panic disorder and depression from the anxiety and the panic, um, I was, I would get so overstimulated so easy. And then I would just like shut down. Do you, can, if you are highly sensitive, can that change? Because I feel like I was highly sensitive and now I'm not, or maybe I was never highly sensitive and it was just the anxiety making me highly sensitive. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question because you could come at that from a few ways. So it depends if you're thinking of, so if we're thinking of sensitivity from a purely like physiological uh, perspective, it's, I would say you can adapt it and change it just like you can with a lot of other physiology in your body. So that's where a lot of your regulation techniques, your daily intentional practices, rewiring the nervous system, kind of that stress regulation piece that we'll get into later is really going to come into play. That's where that works. Um, because it is, you know, desensitizing the system a little bit and making it less alert, afraid, aware. Um, 
from a genetic perspective, we know we have genetic predispositions to things, you know, um, depending on trauma or the stress load that our mom and our grandma, especially the mother, mother lineage, because we're all eggs mm -hmm. in everyone as we go back, right? Like technical, we won't go into the science of this, but mind blowing that you were actually an egg in your grandmother's uterus. Yeah, and this is where generational yeah. trauma comes from that I feel like people roll their yeah. eyes out and it's like, no, you you actually like, you were in there. <laughs> you were in there. Your genes were being impacted by every stress your grandma went through and your yeah. mom went through and these flick those on and off switches on our genes and then make us more predisposed to things. It's also the environment you were grown up in, et cetera, et cetera. So but because of that, on that point, only 10% of things are really considered genetic, like hard genetic predisposition. The other 90%, we are in control of flipping that on off switch depending on modalities and practices. So long-winded answer to say, yeah, I don't believe you can change your predisposition. Like if you have a predisposition to being sensitive, you will likely always have that predisposition. So you have to be aware that yes, you can turn it off, but it can also get turned back on again more easily than someone who doesn't have a genetic predisposition. That makes sense. And that kind of ties in. I have this really big qualm. Everyone's probably like, oh my gosh, you said this so many times, but I absolutely can't stand when people say like, I have to learn how to manage my, like I, not the women I'm working with, but I can't stand when the narrative is like, you can only learn to manage your anxiety, like chronic. I'm not talking about the emotion that's going to come up every now and then that's completely normal. Like every other emotion that there is that us mm -hmm. humans will feel at some point in our lives multiple times. Um, I'm talking about the chronic anxiety. And so I love this conversation where it's like, yes, if there is a genetic, um, disposition to being more sensitive, which is not a bad thing, uh, because of some kind of generational thing, right, then maybe you need to be a little bit more aware and you need to be a little bit more intentional in your daily practices and what you eat and things like that in a way that's kind of like, quote unquote, managing it. But you can do it in a way where it doesn't feel like work. It's just like you build your lifestyle to be a certain way that it manages this genetic predisposition and it turns the light switch off. And then let's say if you know, you spend months and months living the complete opposite of that, then it can turn that light switch back on. Would you say exactly. that's true? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, back to your point about, you know, it not being a curse or a hindrance. I truly feel that the majority of these things we call like a hindrance or things that we talk about as being issues we have to quote unquote fix, they're actually your superpowers. Like I fully, fully think that. I think that, you know, evolutionarily we develop these for a reason um, and there is benefit to them. Like if you're in a danger situation, you want a highly anxious person because they're going to pick up on threats before you're going to pick up on threats. And in situations that is highly beneficial. Um, you know, in my work as both a naturopathic graduate seeing patients and also as a coach, my high sensitivity benefits me immensely because I can, I can feel like other people's energies. Like I can actually, like my empathy is massive. Um, you know, and it's, 
literally like a superhero, you know, like with great power comes immense responsibility. And that's, that's the same with sensitivity. Like it is a superpower. Like I also see any sort of neurodivergent brain or neurodivergent system, which is honestly how I see sensitivity. Um, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder can also be thrown in there, all those other diagnoses. They're freaking superpowers. Like our brains, our bodies, our energetics work completely different than someone who doesn't have that superpower gene. It's our society that makes it pathological um, because society is not wired to honor people who have those superpowers. So a lot of the things that we do when helping people with anxiety is like, yes, we want to help manage, again, I'll use the word manage, but help them, I guess, live with and downplay the distress piece. I think that's the biggest thing. So we're really helping people manage, you know, those negative consequences of having this predisposition in the society we're living today. But a lot of it, like there's no fixing here. Like we're not trying to shift you. We're trying to get you in a place where you have the tools to be truly and utterly who you are. Um, in today's world without that impacting your mind and your body in a negative way. I don't know if that made sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I might have to revisit my major issues with the word manage, because <laughs> if I think about it in the context of my, which is why I love having conversations like this. And I say all the time, mm -hmm. like, I'm not like, I'm so open to changing my mind, you know? Um, and I just love having conversations um, like this and like any conversation that's um, healthy, <laughs> not people, uh, you know, attacking each other and being super emotional. But if I think about it in the context of my work, to eliminate, uh, or break, I'm not allowed to say the word eliminate, sorry, to break up, <laughs> to break up with your anxiety, to release your anxiety. These are like my creative ways of saying it, um, permanently, like an anxiety disorder and to like never have it come back and to only experience the normal human emotion of an anxiety of anxiety a few times a year, which serves as a warning sign about something, right? Like maybe it's really early in the morning and it's pitch black outside and you're just like extra hypervigilant and you hear a noise and you feel anxious, you know, cause it's warning you, mm -hmm. Oh, maybe there's danger, you know, mm -hmm. or you're hungover and you have anxiety because of what just happened to your neurotransmitters and what alcohol did, right? Like, anyway, if I'm looking at it from that perspective, there are certain things that you need to be doing 70 to 80% of the time to manage an anxiety-free lifestyle, to keep it that way so that you're yeah. not struggling with anxiety, panic, depression, acne, IBS, like insert your symptom here, chronic fatigue, headaches, whatever it is, right? And so mm -hmm. if you look at the word manage from I'm fascinated by language and just all the different ways that people can take a word or take a sentence and, and put their own kind of spin on it. So if you look at manage from that perspective, then I don't hate mm -hmm. the phrase, you know, you have to manage your anxiety because it's like, yeah, you just, there's certain things that you need to be doing almost every single day to feel a certain way. And if the certain way that you want to feel is anxiety free, then yes, you need to do, you know, X, Y, Z to keep it that way. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, that's where you can differentiate between, because honestly, at the end of the day, anxiety is a symptom. Again, it's a diagnosis because it makes it easier to treat. 
Yeah. It does not, it's, but it's not a standalone. Like you don't have anxiety, anxiety, end of the day, anxiety is a symptom. Anxiety yeah. is a symptom. Period. So, point blank. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, you are an anxious person. Okay. That's like, you know, like you're not defined by this. It's we're born like, an anxious person. Like, no, you're born with a predisposition, yeah. maybe, maybe, to having more susceptibility to experiencing anxiety. That's a good word. You experience anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it's like how, what that really comes from is that dissonance, like that dissonance between your internal and your external world based on a bunch of different physiological factors. So, you know, from a hormone perspective, um, when you're taking in that sensory information, if you're sent that sensory information coming in, your body goes, okay, so sensory information, basically how it works is like sensory information comes in. I think we were talking about this and then I got off on a tangent, but just going through on that yeah. sensory information comes in, it goes to the thalamus in the brain. The thalamus is like the main control center of your brain. And then it's going to start communicating with other parts of your brain. So for anxiety, the three parts we see the most are the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. So quick neuroscience, your prefrontal cortex is where your executive functioning is. It's also your inhibition center. So this is really the part of your brain that allows you to be a human in today's, a functioning human being in today's society. So planning, organizing, higher level thinking, and shutting off the parts of the brain that are freaking out. So what anxiety, people with anxiety often have in their brain is a predisposition for that to come down. So we don't, as soon as we get sent any amount of sensory information, our brain will go, oh, like we can't plan. We can't do anything. We can't think we're, we're scattered. We're all over the place. And like our brain's firing everywhere because this functioning is lower. And then in the amygdala, which is our emotional center, this is where a lot of trauma patterns are stored. So emotional experiences over the lifetime and lots of people who are more susceptible to anxiety were the people that were highly sensitive, again, superpower, but then put in situations throughout their childhood that were super chaotic, were super unsafe, high dysregulated emotions all over the place. And your amygdala learns this is life. Life is chaotic. Life is scary. Life is extreme. So that sensory information comes in. What's our brain primed to do? Lowered prefrontal cortex. So less inhibition because they, your brain's going, we want the amygdala to scream at us. We want it to tell us we're unsafe because that's what life is. Life is unsafe. That's what it knows. And anything the opposite of that actually feels unsafe. Yes. And this is where we see the hippocampus coming into play because this is our memory center and our brain is wired for logical reasons. Everything's very logical in the, it makes sense. It why our brain sense. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah. Life saving. Like our brain doesn't give a shit about whether you can function at your job. Your life matters. Your brain cares about if you're going to survive or not. Yeah. So the hippocampus will store every single negative experience or scary experience or super emotionally charged experience you have over the good calm peaceful ones because when it comes to survival like honestly who freaking cares about the peaceful ones it doesn't matter it's the scary ones the threatening ones that are the the thing so 
taking all of that together, when you pull that sensory information into your thalamus, your thalamus communicates with your prefrontal cortex, your amygdala, your hippocampus. The combined message is we are in danger every single time a piece of sensory information comes in from anywhere. Then what happens? Communicates with the hypothalamus, which releases a hormone to the pituitary gland, which is our master hormone regulator, sends a message to our adrenal glands, which then we release cortisol and adrenaline. So normally, and this is when you say like, everyone has heard the running from a bear, like this is what happens when you're running from a bear. So it puts you into the fight or flight. What do you wanna do when you're running from a bear? You definitely don't wanna be digesting food because you're not eating. You definitely don't wanna be like having sex or having babies or being pregnant. So all that shuts down. You don't really care about peripheral circulation because you want everything to be going to the vital organs. So everything shunts from the brain to the vital organs. So all of this is happening and from a perspective, and your heart rate goes up and all those things. But from the perspective of like, if you were in real danger, this is all very adaptive. This all very much makes sense. But it's not so helpful when you're literally just like checking your emails in the morning. Or watching a TV or, show or waking up in the morning. Which are all anything. the times I used to feel anxious. It made literally no sense. Anything. I'm like, yeah. I'm watching a game show. Like, what the fuck? I just got up. How is this possible? It's like Groundhog Day. Exactly. I know. And it's like, that's the big piece too, where like, even with all this knowledge, we still have this misconception that anxiety is all in your mind. And it's like a willpower thing or a weakness thing. But if we can really understand how it's all patterns, like it's all what our brain and our body have learned and continues to do because it believes a certain way about the world, that the world is a dangerous place, then yeah, of course, waking up is going to feel anxiety inducing because your brain is like, well, when we were asleep, we weren't taking in information, like we were safe, blah, 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 blah. But then when you wake up, you're like, oh my God, it's like a whole day of possible threats that we got to face. And it's like gearing up for war, like right from the start. So the key here, the big piece to remember here is that like, it's not your fault. It's not something you actually can't push through anxiety. Like pushing through anxiety is probably one of the worst things to do because you're continuing to perpetuate that narrative to your body of like, our needs aren't being met. There's nothing to stop this. Everything is unsafe. So until we look at that actual conscious stress regulation piece, that pattern will continue to perpetuate and probably get worse throughout the lifetime. And when then this gets left unchecked, your body has cortisol and adrenaline pumping through it like 24 seven. And over time, this is where we start to see the development of those physical symptoms and conditions. Mm -hmm. Hello, me again interrupting this episode just one last time because i really need to take a quick minute to invite you if you're ready to join breaking up with anxiety my four-month group coaching program for women who are ready to break up with their anxiety for good by the end of our four months together not only will you have completely rebalanced your gut your hormones and built a flexible nervous system 
but you will have the tools and resources that you need to keep your anxiety away so it doesn't come creeping back down the road. Through simple dietary changes, my signature root cause specific gut and hormone supplement protocol, powerful stress management and nervous system regulation techniques, psychotherapy-based workshops, and the support of myself and all your other Breaking Up With Anxiety ladies, this is going to be the best goddamn breakup of your life. But in order to give each woman who joins the program the support she needs throughout the journey, there are always only 12 spots available for enrollment each month. And right now, there are a few spots left. When you break up with someone that isn't right for you, it's always a relief. Breaking up with your anxiety isn't just a relief. It's completely life-changing. If you are ready to show up for yourself, do the work, and change your life, click the link in the show notes to sign up for Breaking Up With Anxiety today or head over to www.tejandro.com forward slash breaking dash up dash with dash anxiety. Okay, back to the episode. Um, I did a workshop forever ago, not forever ago, a few months ago. It feels like forever ago. Um, and it was all on stress. And part of me talking about this workshop was I, I, you know, you get, a, um, you get a lot of messages where it's like, what's that one thing I have to do? Because that's kind of mm-hmm. the messaging, right? Like just take this pill, just do this one meditation, just do this one breath work practice, just go to therapy. And like, that's going to make you better. It doesn't. And then it mm-hmm. leaves you feeling like broken or hopeless. And so I get a lot of questions about this. And obviously my answer is always, it's never one thing, right? But then as I was putting together this stress workshop, I realized it actually kind of is one thing. It's just that one thing is a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like stress is mental, it's emotional, it's our past traumas. And then it's very physical. It's our gut health, it's our hormones, it's all of those things. So Walk us through what you mean. I totally agree with you what you said that until this stress regulation piece mm-hmm. is addressed, it's just going to continue to perpetuate this cycle. So walk us through what you mean by that. And then give us like your, I know it's going to be really hard, but like your top five, like if you had to pick five things, what would you do? To Perfect. Start? Yeah. I'll give you like the educational basis of how I approach stress regulation because again listeners I and Tay I know comes from this perspective as well like the more informed and educated you are as patients and clients the better you're going to be able to help your own anxiety on a day-to-day basis and that's what matters the most because seeing practitioners is great but it's the in-between it's the real life shit is the problem you know that's where the actual practice of re-regulating is going to come from. Yeah, you can go into sessions and they're really helpful, but if you don't take this stuff and actually integrate it into your day-to-day life, your your brain is just going to continue to vibe on the same patterns. So when we're talking about stress regulation, underlining what I just said, the biggest thing is rewiring the brain and the body's response to those stressors. Training the body to recover also from stress faster. So not only regulating the response, but like the 
when you are actively know you're going through something extra stressful, your body is going through the physical sensations of anxiety. How do you work with that to prevent it from causing physical, more dangerous, possibly symptoms down the road and cortisol? Those are really the three places that like I focus on. And like you said, then we look at breaking it down. But as we touched on before, a lot of this sounds like doing more. And it, it might look like that at the start when we're trying to change habits. But at the end of the day, I think it's super important. Like number one, when we're coming at stress management is you, you want to be upfront and honest with your practitioner about what treatments feel stressful to you. So if someone's giving you like all of these evidence-based stress management strategies and you're sitting there like, holy frig, how am I going to put these all in my life? Like this is going to make my life so much harder, but like, okay. And then the next day they send you the treatment plan and you're like, I'm not going to do any of these because, oh my God, I have more Action stress. Paralysis. You're just like, you shut down. You're like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> We've all yeah. been there. I've been there. Shit. Exactly. So I think the best approach is actually like a strategic, more passive approach where you are learning how to get out of your body's way and optimize your body's innate ability to calibrate, which I know we touched on at the start. Um, because at the end of the day, it comes down to two things, like the HPA axis and the autonomic nervous system. Like those are the big guns. They will cover everything. So for listeners, if you're looking for two things to read about, those are going to be the big guns. Those are going to be the things that give you the most information. So I'll just say, because I have, I can't even tell you how many conversations with women where they're like, I tried this for my nervous system. I tried this exercise. Mm -hmm. I tried this exercise. It didn't work. So I just want to say, and I don't know, maybe you disagree or you agree. Um, you have to look at the body too. Like when mm -hmm. we're talking about the nervous, like I'm not just, we're not just talking about like breath work exercises. Like you have to address, like these are pretty big buckets. I do agree that if you focus on these two areas, but why are those two areas dysregulated? Mm -hmm. Like that, yeah. and just like doing breathing exercises, which I love by the way, and they're part of my program, they're part of my protocol. I still do them myself every single day. I think they're a non-negotiable, but if that's the only thing you're focusing on, then of course you're not seeing the results you want. Yeah. And that comes right back down to anxiety as a symptom. Mm -hmm. So a hundred percent, like trying to nail down. And that's where a practitioner can be super helpful is discovering like, what is the root cause? Because we go through years of school and education. Like you're saying, like, we are passionate about deep diving into research. You might like you as a listener might not be so much passionate no. or <laughs> trained on how to read medical research. And that's not your job. No, like the conventional. <laughs> But I love it. Unless you love it. Yeah, yeah. you love it or you don't. But yeah. it's like, we've put a lot of money and years into learning how to navigate this so you don't have to. Um, and I think we've really come away from that because you go to your doc, your medical doctor, right? A lot of the times, in all fairness, because they don't have the time or the knowledge is, okay, we'll just manage your stress. What and you're like, does that well, mean? <laughs> how do I do that? And they're like, just manage your stress. And you're like, yeah, what? Just do it. <laughs> so it is nuanced. It is complex. So this is where accessing a practitioner that knows what the fuck they're talking about can help you navigate that. Because 100%, like the gut, 
big time with this, the approach you have is huge. Like, you know, majority of our neurotransmitters, our happy hormones are created in the gut that connects to the immune system. You know, immune system is our warriors, our battlers, our protectors. If there is any threat coming from food, um, damaged organs or tissues in like, even if you have osteoarthritis, like your immune system is picking up that tissue is damaged, sending a signal that there's danger and your body experiences anxiety. Your body doesn't know, cannot, your brain cannot differentiate where the threat is coming from internally or externally. So all that to just back you up at like a hundred percent, like there's a reason why anxiety is a comorbid symptom of the majority of physical ailments, both ways. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so with regulation, I think one of the fundamental places that we need to start though, is focusing on the concept of neuroplasticity. Yeah. So this, oh my God. yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> you're like magic word. Um, you're saying so you're dropping all these words. I love like integrate. Calibrate. I'm like, oh my God, I say these words all the time. <laughs> it's just logical. Yeah. Like, you know, see the body through the lens of one system that reflects all systems and everything as one, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's just, these are obvious, obvious words, right? But they're not, they're not used as much as they should be. No, no. I think this might be, I mean, I've had so many amazing conversations on this podcast, not to downplay any of them, but literally every third word you're saying, I'm like, are you in my head? <laughs> so, neuroplasticity, yep. love it. Continue. Yeah. So neuroplasticity is super basically, you know, we've talked a lot about the autonomic nervous system as well as actual brain lobes and parts that contribute here. These are what's ultimately driving it. Like regardless of what the stimuli is or like the root cause, it is your nervous system and your hormonal system that is creating the symptom of anxiety. So while, you know, you're working with a practitioner to deep dive and get into the root cause, what you can do mm -hmm. on an individual level, that's going to have, again, I'm a big fan because I'm a busy freaking lady. And honestly, I'm not good at, I am not adherent to long treatment plans, anything that takes up a lot of my time because I don't have it. And a lot of people who experience anxiety are high functioning, busy, ambitious professionals or entrepreneurs. So this is especially for you. Go for the highest outcome, like highest effect for most minimal time given. Um, and there's so many things in the research now that show that, that can provide that, like meditation, breath work, hypnosis, and other modalities that are really going to work on that somatic nervous system level. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Just talking about that for like a hot second. Di opinions differ. Um, my opinion. I have my from <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear yours after. But so from a professional professional perspective, both from like a research perspective, a physiological perspective, and from what I've seen in patients and heard from patients, as well as my own experience, I think that CBT is highly overplayed. I think that again, it is the one thing where, you know, I have my big book of diagnostics and therapeutics over there. And the really the only non-pharmacological intervention that is discussed is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's purely because there's been 
hundreds of thousands of research studies done on that. And we're seeing yoga, meditation, uh, neuro biofeedback, um, nutrition, like all of these other ways of, of reprogramming, because nutrition is also extremely important for reprogramming your nervous system in itself. We're seeing that research starting to come in the last five or so years. But listeners, you may or may not know that our standard, at least in Canada, again, I think this, the state's is a different story. I'm not sure about the UK and Australia, but at least in Canada, we're working on research that's like 17 years old on average. And so at that point, and who pays for it? That's yeah. a whole nother thing. So look at who's paying for the research. Yes. And when we look at evidence-based medicine, um, I think there's been a lot of focus on randomized controlled trials as being the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also. And, yeah. Um, patient experience, individual experience, as well as your experience as a practitioner are actually in the research-backed evidence-based triangle. So I think it's super important both as practitioners and patients that we remember that research articles aren't the only form of evidence. That's important. Um, <clears throat> so with CBT, it's just there's a lot of evidence for it and it's easy to prescribe. Here, have this anti-anxiety med and CBT, anti-anxiety med and CBT, anti-anxiety med and CBT. I find CBT is very helpful if you're just starting. Like you don't, you didn't even know you had anxiety. Like you don't check your thoughts at all. Like you're not even aware of what you're thinking or how you, you've never heard that thoughts and feelings, behaviors are connected. But if you're someone like most people with anxiety are that are like, read all the books and you've like listening to the podcasts and you know, you're checking your thoughts every second of every day. I used to say to my um, doctor, I'm like, okay, but all I do is CBT myself to death 24 <laughs> seven. Like I'm so tired. It's exhausting. Yeah. Checking my thoughts every, like, is there not a way to get these out of there completely? So I'm not coping all the time. So CBT is great for coping as well as reframing the narratives we have of the world around us. So I will say coping. It's good for managing. That's managing what I think managing means. I think managing yes. is synonymous with coping. I know it's not, but every time I hear the word manage, I hear the word yeah. cope. And I'm like, no, 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 refuse. Yeah. Like it's always going to be there, but we're yes. just like working with it so we can still function. And this is where high functioning anxious people get stuck yeah. because we know how to work with our thoughts, but it's like, I just don't want them there like at all because they're exhausting. Yeah. And as high functioning anxious people, a lot of the time we use that to motivate us. We use it. It motivates us in our career because we're working. Yes hard and it's not sustainable. It will lead to burnout. We've both been in burnout. Um, it will lead to more serious health repercussions down the road. Um, but yeah. because the only difference between high functioning and low functioning anxiety is the symptoms are the same. It's just how you handle it. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. you're either like at home, you can't work, like you're really struggling to get out of bed. That's kind of low functioning. There's obviously gray areas there. And then high functioning is like, you wouldn't even know that person has anxiety or any of the symptoms. And so for a while, it quote unquote serves you. 
because mm-hmm. you can kind of use it to be this high achiever motivator until it doesn't serve you anymore. And mark my words, it will not serve you at some point, even if like maybe someone listening right now is kind of in that like, yeah, I'm anxious, but like, it's fine, you know, kind of phase. Oh, yeah. And also CBT is very much what we call a top down approach. So it's really focusing on that surface level cognition. Let's remember, really, it's only addressing 5% of the problem. Because it's Conscious awareness is only 5% of what's going on and CBT works on completely conscious awareness. So if you're conscious of the thoughts, you can work with them and you can challenge them, right? Like for anyone who hasn't done CBT, long story short, there's a lot of different techniques within CBT. There's different forms of CBT and I'm not discouraging you from seeking CBT. It's a highly researched, well-proven technique that can be very beneficial for reducing anxiety levels in a lot of people. Um, but the thing about CBT is that it works on that cognitive level. So if the majority of your stress and anxiety is unconscious or subconscious, where's it going to go? It's going to go to your body. Um, and like I said, I think we're seeing that shift over the last so many years, especially with social media, this information is able to get out there a little bit more than before around body centric techniques or physiologically mediated techniques or somatic therapies, um, where we're actually looking at the physiology versus psychology. Um, Because at the end of the day, the psychology approaches, again, are really going to help you cope or manage or function, which is amazing. We all need to be doing that. It's really hard to do anything in today's society if you're unable to function. But when you get to that point where you're functioning and you're like, okay, but like now I'm just like really uncomfortable or yeah, now I'm getting physical symptoms or I'm exhausted all the time. We really want to start looking at brain or body focused therapies to help regulate the hormones, regulate the gut, regulate the nervous system so that we're not constantly having to cope and manage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like the easiest way I can think about it is like you're recalibrating your stress thermostat. Because at the end of the day, like if your stress base stress level is like here, like that's where you've been. It's like a baseline level where your body has learned like this is where it's at. You can you can thought check, which might like bring you like, let's go down, actually down below your threshold. Right. You're doing the things you're doing the things you're doing the things. But then it's like something stressful happens and you just bounce back up. You're bounce back up because this is like your calibration points. You might go above it, you might go below it, but you'll come back to this. So really our main goal with working with your physiology is how can we bring that threshold down? So your baseline stress, your baseline anxiety, your baseline response is going to be much lower than it was before so that you're able to tolerate more and you're able to um, basically that. You're able to take in a lot more stressors. You're able to to handle a lot more sensations without your body going into like chaos survival mode. Overdrive. I'm smiling from ear to ear because in one of my programs, I literally on the part that I'm teaching on stress resilience, I have a picture of a woman and inside her is a thermostat. And yes. on the fucking slide, it says calibrate. <laughs> we are literally one brain. I'm like, it, like I'm literally just sitting here smiling. Like, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay, so oh, yeah. yeah, let's um 
reel it in, reel it in, reel it in. I'm just like so excited. Um, okay, so five things. Five ways yep. to calibrate, or at least just to get people started because they're listening to this conversation and they're like, okay, I'm ready. I am ready to calibrate and to regulate my stress response. Um, what would be your top five kind of first steps? Yeah. So first step would be the embodied cognition is kind of what I tell it. So that is that bringing the things that we think are mainly in our cognition, in our mind and bringing them back to the body. So the easiest way, the quickest way that evidence has shown you can shift that state from feeling all your physical symptoms, feeling overwhelmed, stress overload into feeling okay is meditation, diaphragmatic breathing, and yoga. I'm telling you, the research shows five freaking minutes, five, maybe not like three to five minutes of a meditation or focusing on your breathing in a strategic way is going, you will be blown, floored by how quickly you can go from feeling so jacked up and like nothing is going to help you and you're feeling hopeless and you're feeling exhausted to like, holy shit, I forgot what calm feels like. Now there's two parts to this because some people might be like, yeah, like, fuck you. I tried to meditate and all I felt was worse. Like I felt way more restless. If this is you, there's some deconditioning and rewiring that has to be done on the side around productivity versus rest and feeling safe, like you were saying, in a regulated state because our brain's not used to it. So that's a deeper dive. But in the in the get-go, when you're like in the heat of the things, if you're finding that sitting still actually makes your anxiety worse, then you're going to want to do movement. So some sort of moving it. like, And it doesn't have to be a strategic exercise program or anything like that. It doesn't have to be yoga, but yoga is amazing for like literally every piece of the stress puzzle. It hits every single checkbox, but it can, and it can be as simple as just like. Shaking's my fave. She's shaking. That's my fave. Like when like, people come to me and they're like, I need, what do I do to release my anxiety now? I'm like, shake, shake, or just like shake it off. Beat the shit out of something. Yeah. Oh, my God, so much into a pillow. I've done that. Scream mm -hmm. into a pillow. Adult temper tantrum. Yep. And we didn't even talk about the vagus nerve. I feel like we could do a whole section on that, and I won't dive into and it. You're but obviously, just gonna come back and be on <laughs> more episodes. <laughs> but yeah, excited. Um, but yeah, screaming, yelling, singing, like anything that engages the vocal cord is going to be a release of the body, but is also gauging the major nerve that helps us uh, regulate. So all that to say, like, play around with it, play, try, try it out, try a three to five minute meditation. My personal, there's lots of apps, you can free YouTube videos, like there's tons of free resources out there for this right now. Um, I love Insight Timer. I'm not sponsored by any of these people, but that has, I've tried so many and that's my favorite. I love it. Um, it's just like so versatile depending on what you're looking for. Um, and it has guided and unguided. Then uh, for breathing practices, again, YouTube, you can work with a breathwork practitioner, but I personally love the Othership breathwork app. Um, there is a free version and a paid version, so you don't even have to invest, but I do invest because I love it so much. 
Um, yoga, tons of stuff for YouTube. Classes are awesome for that community aspect. Or yeah, I mean, again, just the shaking, any way to move your body. Find out for you what it is you need in those states. And over time, you will get better with knowing what you need. So you're coping, but also strengthening and regulating. Mm -hmm. We like, um, we love something that kind of attacks different areas. We like to be productive. We're efficient. We're efficient. We don't have a lot of time. Yeah, we're very yeah. efficient. We're busy ladies. We don't have a lot of time. <laughs> exactly. Point B faster. So we got to like have it stacked and we just got to stack like the benefits of what we're doing. Exactly. So that was, you know, sum that up, embodied cognition, like anything that's going to get you out of your brain and into your body, either moving or downregulating. Uh, second one is going to be nutritional neuro support. 100%. Your fave. Yay. Bread and butter. No, no pun intended. Bread and butter. But, but you don't want to eat bread and I mean, I don't <laughs> mind butter. <laughs> if it's good quality. Oh my God. Um, bread and organic butter. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, brain food. So I mean, there's a ton of different and you know, Tay has a lot of wonderful resources on this, but a couple big ones that come to mind are omega three fatty acids, you know, that are found in fish, nuts, flax. You can also take them in supplement form. These are super important. We don't get enough of them in the diet. Um, and antioxidants. So colorful fruit and vegetables with fiber. Um, so veggies, eat your fruits and veggies, the more colorful, the more rich in color, uh, the better the nutrient quality is going to be for you. And if I could give you one food, or let's say two foods, let's say three foods, <laughs> my top three other than omega threes are going to be blueberries, leafy greens, and walnuts. What about protein? Oh, and protein. Yes, protein. Yeah. So protein's huge. Um, if we don't have enough protein, that's a whole nother root cause, right? Insulin, um, metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, neurotransmitters. Exactly. Isn't that great? We got a lot of we got a lot of things going on if uh, we're not eating enough protein. It's so funny because exactly. my psychiatrist, the one who pointed me in this direction, he he wasn't able to tell me much, but he was like, I think blueberries are good for you. <laughs> I'm like, I wish he was around so I could tell him they are. <laughs> they are amazing. They're brain superfood. Yeah. And then, so that would be number two. So number one, getting out of your mind and into your body using various techniques. Uh, number two would be the brain food. And then number three, I know we talked about this a little bit. And again, I want to bring back the importance, even though I was kind of playing it down, is that cognitive reframing piece. Uh, because it is super important that we're reframing how we see the world, how we perceive stressors, um, you know, interrupting previously instilled patterns and loops that can drive stress and anxiety. Um, now you can do this from a CBT level, but again, it's very conscious. I have found personally and with clients and patients much better success with things that focus on the subconscious to reframe. So again, that would be things like hypnosis, neuro-linguistic programming. These are all things that work on a deeper level. So they work faster, <laughs> in my opinion. More, They can like shift beliefs that you've had your entire life in one to two sessions. It is actually straight up scientific magic. It's insane. It blows my mind every time. Yeah, it's wild. And it's more, I love therapy. I've been in therapy forever and I still yeah. see value in yeah. 
be from time to time, but if you want to get somewhere faster, in my opinion, the hypnosis and the um, neuro-linguistic route will just get you there faster. Therapy can still be a tool that you use. Like for me, I really want to understand a pattern of mine. And I really want to kind of get into like, why am I like this? Why do I like Mm -hmm. react this way? Blah, blah, blah. I love therapy, you know, to have Mm -hmm. those kind of conversations. That's also just purely an interest of mine. I read a lot of books on Mm -hmm. that. I listen to a lot of podcasts on that. But if I was like, no, I need to get to from point A to point B faster, I wouldn't be looking at therapy in the past. I did, but now knowing everything I know, I wouldn't be looking at therapy to help me do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, therapy is really great too. It's super important. A lot of people don't have, like you need to have someone objective to be able to share yourself unconditionally without the fear of judgment. Um, that's you like and be super honest with them. And that's, that's, I know with a lot, I'm very fortunate because I do have a therapist like that. And I've been with her since 2016. Um, mm-hmm. But I have friends where that's like their biggest thing is like, they're just like, therapy is a waste of time for me because I'm not being honest. Yes. And that's, I mean, that speaks to a lot too. Like how you show up to therapy is, is pretty big too. So I say, you know, it's good at different stages of people's journeys. Like sometimes you're like, for me, I could not, every time I went to therapy, I was feeling re-traumatized. Like it was just, let's unearth everything, but then integrate nothing. So now it's just like in my body, but it's not being integrated. But now like this far into my journey, I was actually just saying to my sister, I'm going to revisit psychotherapy because I feel now I have things quite regulated and integrated, but there's still things that come up where I'm like, you know, it'd be really nice for me to just be able to unleash on someone for an hour who can hold space for that. Yeah. Because sometimes we find ourselves trying to talk to friends and family or a significant other, which of course, like there's a place for support there, but it's a very stressful time for a lot of people right now. And a lot of people with anxiety or stress in general feel, you know, I don't want to quote unquote burden them with more, you know, and that can be stressful in itself because then you feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel like you don't have help, but you do. Um, It's just sometimes usually an objective person who is trained to hold space for that and isn't emotionally tied to you is a better place for you to dump all that. And that will help improve relationships as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So again, one, one, mind to body, two, nutritional neuro support, three, cognitive subconscious reframing, four, breaks, 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 breaks. So this is science. Fucking lesson the hard way. <laughs> Me too, as we normally do. I'm still learning it. I don't know if you saw my. Uh, Well, yesterday, we were supposed to do this podcast yesterday, but I got a migraine because I hadn't been taking my breaks. So what I do for this is a science-backed technique called the Pomodoro technique. Um, I love the Pomodoro technique. Oh my God. It will change your life if you are a scatterbrained person with lots going on. If you find tasks are falling through, if you find you're getting behind on tasks in life, you're procrastinating, shit stacking up, and that's driving a lot of your anxiety. Pomodoro technique, real short. You can literally access it online. I'm pretty. I actually have it like up right here. I think there's it's like, like online calculators, like little stop start things. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, like, it's called talking about this the other day to his team. And I overheard him being like coaching them on the Pomodoro technique. And I was like, <laughs> he also, one time I heard him, it was like some health and wellness week. And I can't, he was talking to them about eating more protein and getting more sleep. But I'm like, you do listen to me. You just yeah. do it. <laughs> hey, we're all really good at telling other people what to do. Not so good at, at embodying that. That's always a pra- practice. But yeah, so you can go pomo, pomofocus.io, but you can also just Google Pomodoro. But it's basically a technique that's shown that ultimate productivity comes with 25-minute spurts. And then basically it'll be like 25 minutes, five minutes of break, 25 minutes of work, five minutes of break, 25 minutes of work, 15 minutes of break. And then you kind of keep doing that until you run out of your task list. And it's amazing. Like you think you'd get so much less done that way because we think we have to take on like two, three, four hours of steady work. But I'm telling you time and we, this is like bottom line of this whole podcast, like time spent does not equal quality of outcome. And we have to get smarter about that, especially for people who are prone to anxious states, overdoing it, burning out, getting distracted, et cetera. Like I saw your story today on working at the coffee shop versus at home. And it's like, it's, it's a real thing. Like in today's age, we have like the attention span of like a peanut. It's like four to six seconds or something. It's getting slower and slower. It's actually crazy. It's getting smaller and smaller. It's wild. Like... <laughs> It's wild. And the more our attention span wanes, the more anxious we're all going to get. So it's like, today's society is not set up for you. These are the things that you're going to have to take responsibility to put in place for yourself if you want to see a change. That's just the bottom, the bottom line of it. So quickly about that too, like these micro breaks can also give you a lot of information about yourself, just like trying meditation and it not going, not being able to do it, quote unquote, this can also give you an insight into your stress patterns. So when, for me, it's really funny. I laugh at myself when the five minute break timer comes on, I have to fight the urge to be like, no, no, just like just 15 more minutes or just like half an hour. I'll be like, no more. Like put it down, like drop Drop it, drop it, drop it. it. (laughs) And then I'm like five minute break. What should I do in my head? I'm like, let's do the dishes. And Miranda, not a break. I was just going to ask you literally, I'll be like, okay, five minutes. I'm going to do some air squats. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do some posture. Actually. I'm like, no, it's a fucking break. Like go make a tea and sit down. (laughs) Look out the window at the sky for five minutes but if that feels difficult to you just note it you just gaining more information about yourself and then number five finally um digital detox yes 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 huge huge like we do not you will not recognize how addicted we are to social media until you do that thing where you delete Instagram off your phone, then you're unconsciously, you find yourself hitting the spot where the app used to be. And you're like, oh my God, what is literally wrong with me? Yeah. Like it'll just happen. You'll just hit the spot. I like, it freaks me out every time I do it. Like a lot of very smart people a lot of money to figure out how to keep us like on these apps. Like these are very fucking smart people. <laughs> There's like psychology behind this neuroscience behind this, this like it's wild. Yep. And all for the purpose of literally making you addicted. 
because all the, they don't have your best interest at heart, which fair, they don't, they're not really like, that's not really their job. Their job is business to make money. And I think it's important that we remember that. And also I remember when I found out that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs and the people who really work on the big guns that work on this stuff, they don't let their kids use these things. That should tell you everything you need to know. That should tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> yeah, they don't use them. You think these like high functioning entrepreneurs are no. using, no, they have teams. They don't even go on social media because they know what it does to your brain and they know what it does to your physiology. So take breaks, even if it's like, like even with the Pomodoro technique, what I love about it is that you will notice how much time you were wasting on social media because I'm telling you when that five minute break happens you pick up your phone you're able to look at like two things before that five minute timer goes off and you're like oh my god that was my whole fucking break if you didn't have that timer on tell me you wouldn't be on that for an hour and then you're like oh my god where did the last and then and then at the end of the day you're like oh my god I don't have time I don't have time to do anything I don't have time to do my 20 minute exercise it's like I guarantee you you were on that phone for like four hours today stuck in the vortex and it's such an energy drain mm. the more you consume the more it drains your energy and so then not only do you not have time which is true that is the reality you don't have time because you spent a lot of time on your phone but you're mm -hmm. also exhausted now like yeah well, it's crazy it goes for me as a creator you know that whole like create before you consume thing that literally everybody in the creator world talks about or anybody who does who and does anything like you write a book any anybody will tell you this like create more than you consume yeah. um I am pretty good because this is a habit I've been working to unbreak since 2015 with my phone. So I actually am like pretty good at not being on my phone. I also have um, an app called Opal that blocks it. I have it set. I cannot change it at certain times. I will literally put my phone down when I'm at home and I won't see it for hours. But this is a habit I built. I was not always like this. Like I broke the old habit and I built this new habit, but I'll still have days where I will pick up the phone and like scroll before let's say I get my post out and then I'm exhausted and I like don't want to post and I don't want to do anything and it actually to, still shocks me every time I'm like why did I do that why did I pick up my phone <laughs> now I'm fucking tired <laughs> yeah and I, I mean bottom line that comes back to the original conversation we were having about what is stress right like every single piece of stimuli you are picking up no matter what people who just scroll through their stories yeah. or like my partner totally calling out my partner on this sorry Christina but uh like oh, in the morning yeah or fam or like literally anyone but like you know at night she she'll just sit there and just right we're guilty of this like I don't do it anymore because again, I don't I, I, my I, phone does not come in my bedroom I do not scroll at all actually yeah. like I go on social media specifically for what I need and then I get yeah. out Same. but uh like this even if you're not consciously watching videos or looking at it, every single time you go through something, your brain is downloading, 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 downloading. So you start your morning downloading a billion things of information, and then that's before you've even gotten out of bed. So your brain only has so much capacity to take things in. So I mean, all in all, social media, there's tons of different issues with this, tons of problems that it causes. If you're going to be on social media, you got to make sure you're using it intentionally.
Mm-hmm. And this is coming from two people who run businesses off social media, yeah. <laughs> which is, which has been a whole learning thing in yeah. itself. I like listen to my podcast instead and get on my email list for like two emails a week. Like I would honest to God, prefer people do that than follow me on yep. Instagram. I truly would because I work in mental health and it would make me a hypocrite if I preferred that you spent your time watching me on yeah. Instagram. Totally. Boom. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Until next time, tell everyone where they can find you and all of the things. Yeah. So right now, uh, in a bit of transition of where I'm popping things, but the easiest thing to find place to find me right now is on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) I promise it is only helpful content and it's not like you have to be on there every second of every day to catch what I do. Be intentional. Um, Go on for a few minutes, creeper stuff, get off. (laughs) Or even just go on to hit my links and we'll have a conversation regardless of what you need. Um, But yeah, so my main Instagram is at I am Miranda Jones. And then that's where you're going to access my main mindset page. So things like hypnosis and NLP. And then I have links there if you want to go to more of like the spiritual energetics account that I have and the services I offer there. Or there's also my more naturopathic like professional account where you can book an actual medical appointment with me if you'd like. Cool. I will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. And that is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's episode, I would so appreciate if you left a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to right now. My goal with this podcast is to reach as many people as possible to spread awareness that anxiety is not this incurable disease It's not something we just have to live with. It's definitely not just part of your personality. And there are body-based imbalances that need to be addressed in order to truly be free from chronic anxiety. With awareness comes action. And the more people this podcast can reach, the less people will struggle with anxiety. And positive reviews are the number one way to help new people discover the show. You are the best. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so, so, so much. One last thing. My legal medical disclaimer. The Breaking Up With Anxiety podcast with me, Taylor Jandro, is for general information and educational purposes only. And the advice and recommendations I give or my guests give throughout the episodes do not replace medical advice. The consumption of this podcast does not qualify as a practitioner-client relationship with me, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. Yes, I am a nutritionist, but I am not your nutritionist. So please discuss any changes with your primary healthcare provider. Okay, that's it. Until the next episode, bye for now.